0: Welcome to the Renew Theology Podcast. I'm Emily.
1: And I'm Bethany. We're two millennial women who enjoy discussing God's Word and how it applies to our lives.
0: We believe in seeking to be rooted and established in the Word and allowing its truth to penetrate every area of our lives. Welcome to another episode of Renew Theology. Uh, Today we're going to be talking about Bible translations. So we're going to be discussing why the Bible needed to be translated into English and why we have so many different translations today. And we're also going to give you a little mini history lesson on uh, some of the first English translations that came out. Then we're going to start talking about some of the um, different English translations that exist today. Uh, We're going to talk about the main ones and we're going to break down some of the different characteristics for each translation and what they're all useful for. And then at the very end of the episode, we're going to discuss paraphrases and why these should not be studied as normal Bibles and how they can be useful to us.
1: Okay, so this is something that I never really thought about growing up because I had my New Living translation that I was given my, my grandma bought it for me. It was a life application, new living translation, and it was really pretty and has like a leather cover and I like it a lot. And I just kind of stuck with that for a long time, not really knowing, like I kind of vaguely knew about translations, but I didn't clue into what they were, or why they were super important.
0: Yeah, I think growing up for me, I was just like, oh, whatever your reading preference is, like whatever you style you like, you just kind of pick your translation based on that. I had a NIV when I was a kid. And it had been like my mom's old Bible when she was a kid or in young adults or something like that. And she'd given it to me and, but it was, the binding was sort of falling apart. So my, I remember my parents actually got it rebound for me at a local shop here in town as a birthday gift. And they had like my name put on it and everything. And I loved it. And that was my Bible for many years. And then my dad, somewhere down the road, he had given me an ESV, an English standard version. And so I kinda like would flip-flop between the two of them, but as I finished up high school, um I went to a youth conference and bought my own like sort of more compact sized ESV. I think it was like the thin line. And I really liked that one. Used it for years, and I still use the ESV today. So I personally, I really like the ESV now. But yeah, when I was younger I had an NIV.
1: Okay, so let's get into some of the history about this. So the first question is why do we need English translations at all? Like why Why do we need something to be translated? The simple answer is that the original texts are not in English. So unless you can read Greek and Aramaic and Hebrew, you're not going to be able to read the original manuscripts. That's the problem. So in order to get what was written way back when into a form that we can understand now, it has to be translated from one language to another. So it's a pretty simple concept um that we're working with. So talking about English Bibles, um the very first English Bible is actually the Wycliffe Bible and it was translated in 1380. That's the very first one. So you might recognize the name Wycliffe because there's now Wycliffe Bible Translators so There's still an organization today and they do really good work about translating the Bible into languages for people all over the world. It's incredible.
0: I always pronounced it Wycliffe. Really? Yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs>
1: That's okay. So the next one is William Tyndale's New Testament translated from Greek. So William Tyndale is a really important person that I understand because he went against the church of the day and started translating himself the New Testament from Greek into English. And because of the political religious climate at that time, he was actually arrested and then executed and his body was burned. It was because of his resolute commitment to the Bible translation and his desire to make sure that from the the boy who's like a farm boy to the clergy, everybody could read the Bible for themselves. They didn't have to rely on someone else's um, translation or interpretation or explanation. They could have it in front of them.
0: And that all went down in the late 1400s, early 1500s, correct?
1: Yeah. So that's, it's a really interesting time because it's after, like around Luther um, and his whole Protestant Reformation, and then the Catholic Church is trying to get its stuff together, and they're holding even tighter to their values. So later on, you have um, Mary, who was King Henry VIII's daughter, and she was just crazy for, um, she was Catholic, and there was a really tightened up for a lot of killings, and it became extremely um, difficult to translate the Bible from its original languages or at least Latin at that point to English because it was just it was seen as heresy. So that's that's who actually killed William Tyndale. So I'm pretty excited to meet William Tyndale in heaven someday because I think he has some really amazing stories of God's provision and just his commitment to what God had called him to do. That's really the spark for why you can read the Bible in English today. So you've got William Tyndale to thank.
0: So the Geneva Bible um, actually came about as a result of... Um, mary's persecutions so a bunch of english protestants um, were in exile while mary was reigning and so they actually um, produced the geneva bible which was first published in england in 1576 it was never authorized by the crown so it was never like official but it was super popular among puritans and so it was It was definitely, like, a people's Bible. I, I don't know about you, but, like, when I started researching this, I was sort of surprised to find out, like, hey, the King James Version was, like, not the first English Bible. I think a lot of people assume that um, yeah, it like, because it's, like, the only main surviving.
1: It's the biggest one. That's the one people know, and it stayed all the way until it was redone. They got the new King James Version in the 1980s. Um, it's interesting for me, because Bibles are so common now in, like, the Western world, um like I have three or four personal hard copy bibles but at the time it would have been like very counter-cultural like super against the crown if you had an English translation and you were found with it like you could be in big trouble and that mindset to me is so interesting it com- it compels me to study what I've got and really be grateful for being in this time the King
0: James Version was actually a big deal publishing it it was very organized it was not you know just one rebel protestant being like we need the bible um it was actually like commissioned by king james he was like i need you to do this bible and so here's a group of scholars it's believed that there were 47 scholars who actually participated in putting together the king james bible
1: now, because of the time period, they didn't they only had access to about 6 Greek manuscripts when they were translating the New Testament. So a manuscript is just a copy of the New Testament that we have. Like it's a like a physical writing like paper or papyrus. So at the time, the oldest manuscript the oldest Greek manuscript that they were writing from for the King James Version was from the 10th century. So we're talking a thousand years out from the original events was the earliest that they could find. The latest manuscript they were using was from the 13th century. So that's 1,300 years after Jesus. So we're talking about a very large span of time. The, The margin of error is pretty large right here. So to compare that to
0: today, Currently, we have over five thousand eight hundred manuscripts that we translate from, and the earliest of these is from the late first to early second century. So, at the earliest, that would be seventy years after the death of Jesus. Um, so, it's it's within that hundred years of Jesus' death.
1: Now, to put that into perspective a bit, we're talking. This is a physical copy of something that had been written down at the time of about the New Testament. Um, so this means it makes sense because they're not going to start writing and then circulating like a year after Jesus's death and resurrection. It's going to take a little bit for the apostles to write these and for them to be circulated among the people and then those copies made. So it makes sense that there's less the further back you go because they're you're right close and they're just being written.
0: Yeah. And I think too, you wouldn't have needed to write things down two years after Jesus died because everybody would have known about it. Right, the people who were who were witnesses to these events were still alive. So it was around the time when, when these witnesses were were getting older or started dying, that people started saying, "Hey, we should write this down for those who are going to come after us."
1: It's neat because we actually have documentation of people who were around at that time who were writing, um, either writing the New Testament, like Luke was, and he says, "I undertook to write an account of what happened," and he's trying to do that before all these witnesses. Um, die and the bible project has an interesting comment where you know how like randomly there are people that are named in the gospels they think that those are the people who were the eyewitnesses that the writers went and talked to
0: yeah that makes sense because if you are trying to build a valid case for something you're gonna say no i talked to this person they said it that gives you some uh, validity and it it legitimizes your claims
1: yeah, like the story of Jarrus' daughter being raised to life. Jarus is probably one of the people who gave his account of what happened to the writer, which I think is incredible. I never thought that that's totally new news to me. Yeah, that's super cool to think about. <laughs>
0: So, I don't know about you, Bethany, but I've heard people say if the King James Version was good enough 100
1: years ago, it's good enough now. What are your thoughts on that? I've heard it even worse. If the King James Version was good enough for Paul, it's good enough for me. (laughs) Newsflash, Paul didn't have the KJV. He would have no idea what he was looking at if he looked at a KJV Bible.
0: English didn't exist. No. (laughs) When Paul wrote the epistles. Yeah,
1: there's this idea that God gave the Bible in king james form like it just like came down in 1611 in king james form it's like god did it the first time why do we need a second one
0: and i can understand how that's a common misconception for people who aren't familiar with translations and how they came how they've come about over the years um because there is something about the king james version where when it was written it was the common language but you know now hundreds of years later it's definitely like a sort of a higher form of English. So it it just, it sounds holy, you know, and it sounds like the Bible. And that's just because of the language it's written in. And the King James Version was written to be very um, poetic and very beautiful. It's a work of art. So it definitely flows and has has a rhythm to it.
1: Yeah, it, it is a really neat, like when you hear it, you kind of get the sense of, oh, this is like super important. Um, the The problem with that is that it was actually, the King James Version was written to be in the language of the people. The problem is now we don't speak that language anymore. There, like in, in numerous ways, we don't, we don't use those words. Not only have some of those words changed meaning, we don't even know what some of them are. Like we don't use them anymore. And so the King James Version mostly is not in the language of the people anymore. Its reason for being written is no longer valid in today's English world.
0: So the first translation we're going to talk about is the New American Standard Version. So this version was originally published in 1971, and then it was revised um, in 1995, and I believe they're actually working on another revision right now. When the New American Standard Version first came out, it was highly praised for being very accurate, being very true to the original languages, but people who wanted a Bible that was smoother to read and had a nicer flow to it were a little more critical of it. So the New American Standard Version has always been meant for more in-depth study. It's definitely a very word-for-word translation and I believe right now they're actually working on updating it because it hasn't been updated in a long time.
1: So because they're working with older more older manuscripts they can go back and say okay well this newer manuscript it doesn't have this thing and the older manuscript does so the older one is probably more correct it's not always the case but because they have so many more options to work for there's a there's much less um, options of error because they just if you've got 17 that have one error and the rest of them don't you're going to go with the one that doesn't have that it makes more sense it's easier to figure out Moving forward. So, our next one is the English Standard Version. So, this was originally published in 2001, and several revisions have taken place since then in 2011 and 2016. So, it uses the Revised Standard Version, which we didn't talk about because it's no longer in print, as its base text. So, it means that they didn't go straight from Greek to English. They went from the Revised Standard English Version and then reworked in the original languages when they felt it was necessary.
0: So, they basically updated the Revised Standard Version. And the Revised Standard Version is an older version. So, they have more source documents now, right? So, they basically, it's basically an improved Revised Standard Version.
1: Um, So, it's a word-for-word translation, but a little bit less so than the New American Standard Bible. So, it's considered a bit more readable. Um, Now, we're going to talk about something now. It doesn't try to be gender neutral, but rather gender accurate. So at this point in time, there are lots of um, phrases that are about when a man does this or talk about talking about brothers, but oftentimes those words um, meant men and women. Like, go tell the brethren this. Well, it's not like you're going to exclude all the women when you tell them that. You're talking about everybody. Or if it's like... Um, what does it profit a man if he gains the world and loses his soul? They're not just talking about men. Women can also have that issue. So they're moving away from just saying the male version and trying to include um, both genders, which is what the meaning of the original text was. So instead of trying to be gender neutral and saying like or instead of saying brothers they would say siblings maybe or brothers and sisters. instead it tries to be gender accurate meaning in the cases where they're referring to men and women they make that clear
0: this is something that we don't really have in english like if we are talking to um, men and women we're gonna say men and women ladies and gentlemen can i have your attention please like we don't just say people you know at least not in formal writing. But this is something that I always compare to like the Spanish language. So I took Spanish, I'm sure it applies to other languages as well, but I took Spanish in high school. And in Spanish, of course you have the genders, right? So you have like something like brothers and sisters or boys and girls, right? If you are, so if you're addressing a crowd of boys, you're going to call them niños, right? And if you're addressing a group of female children, you're going to say niñas, right? That's the, that's the female form. But if you're in a room of boys and girls, even if there's only one boy and the rest are girls, you say niños, Like it takes on the male form. Yeah. So to me, when I read the Bible, I'm kind of like reading it in the same sense where I'm like, okay, like it says brothers, but it means brothers and sisters. And I think that's how the original text was written. But since we don't really talk that way in English, it's necessary sometimes to put in brothers and sisters because otherwise some it could be misinterpreted, right? Some women may say, "Oh, this doesn't apply to me." Well, no, it it does. That's just not how we talk anymore. So, our next version is the Holman Christian Standard Bible. This Bible was published in 2004, so it's also a newer version similar to the ESV. It's different from the ESV in that it did not use a base text. So, the translators went straight to the original languages and they translated themselves and if i can say this they made a brand new version in the sense that they didn't have a base text of course the bible itself is not new but they made a new version the way they don't really call this bible either word for word or phrase for phrase but rather they use the term optimal equivalence this basically means that they look at each verse or phrase or word as they go along and they say how would this best be communicated so that means that sometimes they're translating word for word and other times they're translating phrase for phrase. They basically go through and they say, okay, this section would be most accurately communicated if we translate it with a phrase by phrase method. But this word over here would be best translated word for word. So they sort of um, try and get the best of both worlds in that sense.
1: When they come across a, a phrase or like a passage, is it going to Best get the point across if they do it in the exact wording. Like, is that more important to get the exact wording, or is it more important at that point to get it the the phrase or the idea across? And can they u- do that better using new phrasing?
0: I've also heard that this translation um, is a quote Baptist translation. A lot of people think, "Oh, this is a Southern Baptist translation," and so it sort of leans in that direction. But that's not true. Um, There were over a hundred scholars involved in this translation, and those hundred scholars came from 17 different denominations, so it definitely is not biased towards the Baptist tradition.
1: Next one is the New International Version. So this is probably the most popular English translation right now. It tends to be more phrase for phrase than word for word. It's used in a lot of pulpits across the Western world, the English speaking world. So it was published in 1984 and then revised in 2011.
0: Yeah, and I think a lot of people, I mean, I heard about the 2011 version coming out because I think a lot of people were a little concerned about it, but... Um, it was mostly just an updated version, right? Like you had things like maybe before it just said brothers and they realized, hey, this could be more accurate, accurately translated as brothers and sisters. Or so there was like small changes like that made. And they really just, they did this very subtly. They did not, you know, make a big deal about releasing this. They just sort of took all of the 1984 versions off the shelf and replaced them with 2011. So if you've bought a a niv since 2011 is it's a 2011 they don't sell the 84s anymore so the next translation is the new living translation and this is the one bethany had mentioned that she had growing up as a kid and my husband william has like the guy's version of bethany's bible like it's the same bible it's just black and gray so the new living translation is pretty commonly known as a phrase by phrase translation that being said it's a pretty good phrase for phrase translation Since I'm used to studying out of the ESV, I think where I find the New Living Translation to be useful is when I just need a new perspective. It's really helpful and I will just, if I don't quite understand the wording of a passage, I'm able to pull that Bible out and because it's more phrase for phrase and it's a little bit more modern language and it flows a little bit nicer, sometimes it helps me deepen my understanding of the passage. Um, So it can be really useful for that okay let's let's talk about paraphrases yeah (laughs) i have problems with these so these are bibles that are often talked about or treated like they're translations and we're here to say they're not translations they are paraphrases and what we mean by that is that you know when you're taking a, a translation when you translate something you're saying the same thing but in a different language at a very basic level that is what translating is. If you have an English document and you translate it into Spanish, you're not changing the meaning at all. You're going straight from one language to the other. You're being as accurate as possible. A paraphrase is not a translation because that's not the goal of a paraphrase. The goal of a paraphrase is to take a text and express
1: it in a different way to the reader. So paraphrasing, according to Google, is a rewording of something written or spoken by someone else. So it's expressing the meaning using different words.
0: A simple way to think about paraphrasing would be it's not quoting. If you quote someone directly, you're saying word for word what they said, right? But if you're paraphrasing them, you are basically getting the gist of it without saying their exact wording.
1: So a lot of these are often the work of one person. So the message um, was by Eugene Peterson. And then the Passion Translation was by Brian Simmons. I have a problem with it being called a translation because it's not... Um, I remember doing a word study in one of in my inductive Bible study class or a Bible study class in university, and we compared them all together. And it was almost laughable sometimes just how far off some of the paraphrases we were looking at were, because we had done from all the way from word for word, and it was just like this is nothing like what it is. And the other translate like it totally missed the mark. And it was kind of scary because I know that some people do use these as their main. Reading material like they they think it's easy and they understand it and so they stick with it and we're concerned that these are standing in for the Bible when they're not they're not a translation it's somebody's interpretive, um poetic writings that are are, could be very misleading and it's pretty easy to be off base and I if you don't believe us I challenge you to do a comparison it's pretty easy to do on the U version Bible app you can. Pull up a translation, um, a verse, and then go through three or four different translations pretty easy and just see what they all say. Um, I do that quite often in church or if I'm doing my own study, I'll just pull out my phone, open the app, and I'll I have looked through a couple of them within like two minutes. And it just, it's very helpful. So I would challenge you if you're a, um, a paraphrase Bible person to do the work, do the research, see if what you're reading is... Um, comparable to other translations that are more reliable and i think it's important to note too that there's nothing wrong with
0: having a bible that's easy to read i think it's it's far better to have a bible that's easy to read that is phrase for phrase like the new living translation than to have a king james version that you can't understand Um, you know the important thing is that we're in the word the ones that are more phrase for phrase, they just have a nicer flow to them, so they do come off as a little easier to read. So I think that we should all be reading like the the most about as word for word as we can get while still understanding what we're reading. I do not re- read the King James version. I there's nothing wrong with my reading ability, but I'm still not going to read the King James version. So there are people who say that you should aspire to read the King James Version because it's a higher reading level, but that's not helpful if you don't understand it. And that's not helpful if you are not able to learn more about God because you're reading a version that is just so, that has outdated language. That's not helpful. And so the King James Version, it's beautiful. It's a work of art. And if you enjoy reading it, go for it. But don't ever feel guilty because you don't read it. going to make a quick note about the Passion Translation. Um, I watched a really great video by Mike Winger on the Passion Translation where he really breaks down um, his issues with the Passion Translation and not only his issues with the translation, but issues with um, the man who claims to be the translator, who is Brian Simmons. And Mike really uh, dug into his you know, what qualifications did he have for writing this and all that sort of thing. So I highly recommend you check it out. If you do read the Passion Translation, please watch this video. Mike is very fair about it. He doesn't, you know, completely bash the Passion Translation. But there are some things you need to know if you're going to read it, including that there's some very obvious um, denominational leanings um, that can, that have influenced the translation. The message, another point we're just going to make real quick here, is that the message is very idiomatic. And what I mean by that is that it just used a lot of phrases and sayings that are very specific to our day and age. So Bethany is just going to read a couple of verses and compare them against a more word-for-word translation. I believe she's going to be using the um, Holman Christian Standard Bible.
1: Yep, that's mine. So we're going to look at Proverbs chapter 1, verse 17 here. I'm going to read it from mine, the HCSB. It says, It is foolish to spread a net where any bird can see it, but they set an ambush to kill themselves. They attack their own lives. Now we're going to read it in the Message Bible. It says, Nobody robs a bank with everyone watching. Yes, that's what these people are doing. They're doing themselves in. You can see how... Like, that's phrasing that we understand sort of, but how it doesn't quite get across what the Holman Christian Standard does. Like, the Holman Christian Standard is just a little bit, it's more sophisticated in the way that it carries across the meaning to me. I can understand a little bit of the nuances there. Whereas, if I read Nobody Robs a Bank with Everyone Watching, I'm like, well, duh. Like, it it's, it's very simplistic.
0: Well, it's like, it just strikes me that it's a completely different analogy. You know, like one is about birds and the other is about bank robbers and that's just completely, yeah, it's very, very different. So it's definitely not a translation. And the other thing that I notice about that is that the paraphrase loses the analogy a little bit because in the Holman Christian Standard Bible and, and most word for word translations, it's going to say no one spreads a net where birds can see so the idea is entrapment whereas when you're robbing a bank that's that you're not trapping anybody you're stealing those are two completely different concepts when you when you think about it
1: okay example number two psalm 1 verse 1 in the holman christian standard bible it says happy is the man who does not follow the advice of the wicked or take the paths of sinners or join a group of mockers now, Psalm one in the Message Bible. How well God must like you. You don't hang out at Sin Saloon. You don't slink around dead-end road. You don't go to smart-mouth college.
0: The thing that bothers me about this verse is the very first part, where the Holman Christian Standard Bible says, um, happy is the man. But the message says, how well God must like you. Like To me, those are two completely different things, and the message sounds sarcastic. Like, oh, God must like you. Like, oh, he, you must be his favorite. You know, that's how that sort of sounds to me when that's not how the Holman Christian Standard Bible is saying it at all. They're just saying, they're making an observation that if you live your life in an appropriate way and if you are righteous before the Lord, you're going to be happy. Like that that has nothing to do with God liking you.
1: My problem is that in this case, how well God must like you. You don't do these things. Does God like me because I don't do sin? No. (laughs) Like, it's almost like if you don't do those things, God has to like you. Like, he must like you because of something you're doing. That is complete opposite of what the gospel is, where we do things that God hates and he comes and sends his son for us. Like, this, it's a total reversal. Yeah. Yeah. So, you can see some of
0: our issues with paraphrases. (laughs) So, again, I mean... I know people who read the message, it can be really refreshing sometimes to just go through and be able to read something from a different perspective and in a different light, but the danger is in making it your only Bible and your main study Bible that you read, and I know Eugene Peterson too, he did not write this with the intention of it being a study Bible, and he said that he'd go into churches and they would be quoting the message from the pulpit and he'd feel embarrassed and he was like that's not why i wrote this because he knows that it's not accurate enough to preach from in that sense he knows that because that wasn't his intention his intention was to produce a paraphrase and he did and i appreciate the fact that he was upfront and honest about that
1: i know i don't doubt eugene peterson's motives but i wish i honestly wish this was never in the market because it's misled too many people And it will continue to do so unless people take a serious look at it. And that to me is a concern. I want you to have the best relationship with God that you can. Um, And reading his word and understanding it, this is not the way to do it. There's a lot, there's more, there's better options. So I have something in front of me here called the translation continuum. So if you're looking at a sliding scale from left to right, on the left is word for word. So that's a little bit choppy because it's going... Greek word, English word, Greek word, English word. Um, and it goes all the way to the right for thought for thought. So that's kind of like idea for idea. And on the very left, we have the New American Standard Bible. And then going over to the right, ESV, then the King James Version. And then Holman Christian Standard. And then the NIV is pretty close to the middle. And then going to the right, the New Living Translation and then the Living Bible, and then finally the Message is all the way on the right. As a Christian who is sola scriptura, I believe in in the Bible, and I believe in the whole Bible, and I understand translation, I have an issue with the New World Translation, which is the translation used by um, the Jehovah's Witnesses. And that's because it was translated quote unquote, by 46 people who wanted to correct so-called errors that had been perpetuated in um, modern culture. And so these are not Greek scholars. They pretty much took an English version of the Bible and then changed it where the Bible disagrees with their beliefs. Now, they're going to say, oh, we've corrected the errors. Um, But they don't know Greek. They're not using the original manuscripts. They're not using the actual um, like, text and proof and um, that we have. So it's a problem. I actually have a New World Translation Bible that I got from one of the Jehovah's Witnesses that I met um, in South Carolina. And I have it just for comparison's sake. Um, so you can look through. If you know anything about Bible translation, you do any sort of research and you start comparing you'll you'll see pretty fast that something like the New World Translation is off base, and it's off base in the areas where their beliefs disagree with the Bible.
0: So thanks for listening today to our episode about Bible translations. We'd love to hear what you think. Um, What translation do you use? Are any of these, did you learn anything new about your translation in this podcast? And uh, are you going to try out any new translations after hearing it? We'd love to know. Um, we'd also really appreciate it if you rate us in the uh, in iTunes um, because that is really encouraging to us and it helps other people find our podcast more easily.
1: And if you leave us a review and you write something, I promise I will read it. You can find us on Facebook at Renew Theology Podcast. You can find us on Instagram at Renew
0: Theology. And you can also email us at renewtheology at gmail.com. So thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Bye. Thank you